George Mallory was one of the first to climb Mount Everest, and when he was asked why, he famously answered, because it was there. For him, the mountain, and climbing it, represented ambition. And when he did it, it displayed victory. He even told his wife that he was proving himself as a worthy person by doing so. But years later, his own son wrote these haunting words. His son wrote, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero as some perceived him to be. To the public, George Mallory was a hero, but his son simply wanted a father. And my question for him would be this, whoever told George Mallory that the ambition of climbing a mountain was greater than the ambition of raising a son? See, ambition is an incredibly unique part of humanity. It's very powerful. And for that reason, it can be very hard to tame. It can be problematic. It can result in disaster. It can also result in great good. It all depends on where we're directing our ambition. And it is absolutely unique. Like, if you think about it, in no other creature on planet Earth does ambition exist. Think about animals, right? Animals simply want to be well-fed versions of themselves. Except for cats. They want to rule the world, apparently. <laughs> we, we have ambition. We have desire. It's not just enough to, like, survive and just live. We need something more. I was struck when I, I read a while back a, a book written by a, a surgeon, a, a doctor who was also an author, and he took all his observations about people in the younger years of life, but also the aging years of life, and he's not a Christian, but he made this observation in all his years of experience in the medical world in this book on being mortal. He said this, being merely housed and fed and safe and alive seems empty to us. What more is it that we need in order to feel that life is worthwhile? The answer is that we seek a cause beyond ourselves. We need a concrete reason to get up in the morning. So what is that reason for you? What is that reason for me? We all have ambitions, but what are they? What is it that we most want? Or to borrow a phrase, a famous phrase from our passage today, how would you complete this sentence? For to me, to live is blank. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been going to church for a while, you know what you should say. You should say what Paul says. For to me, to live is Christ. But if we're being honest, I found myself wrestling with this even as I was reflecting on the passage this week. Like, can I really say that? Is that functionally true? Can I say, like, man, what I'm really living for is Jesus? Oftentimes, that is not the case. What is it for you? Be honest. How would you complete that sentence? 
Or to put it another way, what is it that you find yourself longing for and daydreaming about? What passions fill your mind? They might even be good ambitions. But the question for you and I is what is our ultimate ambition? See, the Bible doesn't tell us to get rid of ambition. The Bible says it's about having the right ambition. And few articulate the right ambition like Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 1. Paul, the author of this letter, we know, has been imprisoned and his future is uncertain. He's been accused of causing civil unrest through his preaching, a charge which caught the attention of the Roman government. And all of this after years of hardship. And here he is writing from his cell, awaiting his verdict. And as we read over the shoulder of the Philippian church, a community that he established some years earlier, we are given a glimpse into what he's thinking about, where his heart and his mind are at. He has an ambition. And it brings him joy, even in prison. So I want us to ask, what are the marks of this ambition? And why should it be ours? The first is this. This ambition of his is transcendent. It lies outside of this world. Notice his sense of freedom from shame and his source of courage comes from something beyond himself and outside of this world. In verse 20 and 21, from his cell, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, here's this mission statement, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice where his confidence does not lie. Notice where his ambition is not directed. These things do not lie in or are directed towards his own reputation. He doesn't say, hey, when I get out of this jailed cell and everyone praises me, then I will have sufficient courage. Or when I get wealthy off this ministry gig, then I will have contentment. No. His hope and expectation does not lie in his own reputation, his possessions, or even his own comfort. The only reason he would be ashamed is if he did not display what is most important to him, and that is Jesus Christ. And that phrase, to not be ashamed, really carries two ideas. One, it means that he's standing courageously. If you say, I'm not ashamed, that would display a great sense of courage. But there's more than that. There's another idea. When he says, I will not be ashamed, he's not only saying, yes, I have courage. He also is displaying an assurance that his hope is not misplaced. This is key. He's saying, the thing that I'm trusting in, I have full confidence that that this thing is not going to let me down. I do not have a misplaced hope. Imagine for a moment if if your friend or your neighbor was like, hey, I have full, I mean, even if they use the words of Paul, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage that the economy is going to get great in the next 30 days. 
We would all laugh. We'd be like, you're a fool. <laughs> or at least for those of us that read the news. Because it would be a misplaced hope. But Paul's courage comes from the fact that he is confident that he has placed his hope in the right thing. His ambition is pointed in the right direction. Even in prison, he has passion and he has purpose because his ambition lies outside of this world. If you put your hope or direct your ambition toward something in this life, then it is subject to the fragility of this world. It is subject to corruption. It is subject to death. If you want freedom and courage, you need to set your ambition on something that is bigger than yourself. I think most people know this. They know it's not just a, a, enough to only live for yourself, even though that tends to be the dominant message of our culture. I think we intuitively get that. Like if you drive to the Grand Canyon, you, you don't just drive up there and walk all the way to the ridge and say, I'm amazing. <laughs> if you do, there might be some issues there. We could talk, maybe pray afterwards. But usually you're overawed by something else. We all have this sense that, man, I've got to live for something more. We're all searching for it. What is it? It's got to be something beyond ourselves. And Paul makes it absolutely clear that the thing that you need that is beyond yourself actually lies beyond this world, and that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he goes further. He says, this then impacts the way that I live. He uses the phrase that Christ will be exalted in my body. What does he mean by that? He means in everything I do. In everything I do. We all present our bodies to something. If you're pursuing, you know, money, you present your bodies to work so that you can earn money. Why is he saying this? He's saying that because Jesus is the very center and foundation and source of my life, it's going to direct how I behave in this life. In my body, I want Christ to be exalted. He is my ultimate ambition. He's the center of everything. Or in another letter, Paul puts it like this. Jesus is reality in Colossians 2, which, by the way, is where we get the name of our church. Meaning that in Jesus, he's saying, I find the comprehensive, accurate, and most powerful understanding of life. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name that deals with the greatest problem of humanity. There is no other name that provides greater hope. There is no other name that provides the healing that we need other than the name of Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, he says, for to me, to live as Christ. Now, we might be familiar with that phrase if you've been around the church, but what does it mean? To say to live as Christ means at least four things. First, the life of the Christian is given by Christ. That's what it means. If we say for, to me to live as Christ, first we're saying the life of the Christian is given to me by Christ. It's a gift that comes from him. Second, it means the life of the Christian is sustained by Christ. It's not a one-time event, like I receive Jesus, get a little gift 
from him and that I move on with the rest of my life. No, when I say, for to me to live is Christ, it not only means I receive the gift of life from him, but that I am sustained by him. But there's a third. For the life of the Christian, it means that I model my life after Christ. That the way that I behave, the way that I treat others is modeled after Christ. And fourth, the life of the Christian is directed towards Christ. He is my goal. That's what it means for us to say, to live is Christ. My life is given by Christ. It's sustained by Christ. It's modeled after Christ. And it is directed towards Christ. And so when Paul has this transcendent ambition. Jesus Christ, who lies outside of this world, he's not looking to fulfill his ambition in anything in this world. The closer he draws to Christ, the greater his fulfillment. That's how it works. I point that out because oftentimes the choice between living for yourself or living for something else is presented as be happy or be miserable. Right? Isn't the, the climax of like, most testimonials you see on like, whether it's reality TV shows or like, you know, interviews or whatever, the moment the penny drops is the moment when someone says, I did it for myself. And everyone's like, so brave. Mm. Like that's the moment, that's the climax of the narrative of somebody's, you know, testimonial. The choice is usually presented. If you want to be happy, you got to live for yourself. If you want to be miserable, live for something else. But for Paul, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. When someone's asking you to put God first in your life, to put Jesus first in your life, sadly, it can sound to us as kind of a bummer. Like, well, yeah, I guess, I guess I have to do that. I guess it's the right thing to do. I'm just kind of lower my standard here. No! But don't take it from me. Take it from C.S. Lewis. He said this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, Oftentimes when we say, make Christ your ambition, you're like, I guess so. But man, I really wanted to pursue this career. I wanted to live in this city. I wanted to make these figures. I wanted to have the home. Like, man, I got to put a damper on my ambition. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, your ambition is tiny. <laughs> the true goal of your ambition lies outside of this world. We were made to know and display the greatness of God. That is our goal, even as a church, in our gatherings, our community groups, everything else that, that we do. Our goal is to make much of Jesus. Paul's ambition is transcendent. Sin has separated us from God, and therefore we're constantly trying to fill ourselves with lesser things. But if you make anything in this life alone, your ultimate ambition, it will destroy you in the end. 
But if you make Christ your ambition, it will bring life. And that leads to the second mark of this ambition. To save, for to me, to live is Christ. We note first, it's a transcendent ambition. You and I need it. But secondly, it is an internal ambition. This ambition for Paul is eternal. It outlasts death. Because if there's one thing that will put a damper on your ambition, it is death. You're like, I want to have a great career. Well, death can ruin that all. I want to have great health. Well, also death. Like, death will put a damper on it. And so Paul's perspective on living and dying is so countercultural. Death for him is not the end of the story. Verse 22 to 23, he says, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. And in that last phrase, he's echoing what he said earlier, to die is gain. What does Paul mean? What is he talking about? If you're not yet a Christian, you're like, dude, this guy's crazy. Like who says, I hate to die is better. You're like, wow, you must be sure of something after life. And Paul would say, why, yes, I'm glad you asked. It's important to note that Paul, when he says to die is gain, He's not just talking about escaping pain. And I want us to take notice of what he says because it shapes how a Christian views death. This is massive for us. For a Christian, what lies beyond and the way in which we view death is threefold. According to Paul, it's a departure, it's an exchange, and it is a reunion. That's how the Christian views death. First of all, for the Christian, death is a departure. And Paul uses that word depart. Now, bear in mind, Paul was a part-time tent maker by trade. And so the imagery that this word carries is that of striking a tent in preparation to leave. For those of you who camp, I don't. Uh, but I've heard all about it fr from you because you never stop talking about it. <laughs> You're like, I've got this solar-powered machine so I can, you know, like, froth my milk in the morning when I'm camping near Yosemite. I'm like, that's great. I just make my coffee at home and I sleep in my bed. But whatever. Some of you, you've got your tent. You're proud of it. But you never put your tent in such a way that you're going to live there for the next 60 years. It's made to put up and then strike down very easily. That's the imagery that Paul is using about his life. He's like, my life is a tent. This is a transition period. We are pilgrims passing through. This is not our eternal home. The current moment does not provide the permanence that you long for. Some of you say, hallelujah, because this moment ain't good. <laughs> but for some of you, you're like, man, everything's going great. Well, if it's not a sin to quote C.S. Lewis twice, he did say this. On this journey towards heaven, God will provide us with many pleasant inns, but they are never to be mistaken for home. How many of us are mistaking a pleasant inn that the Lord may have provided for you as if it were your eternal home? This is not all there is. And so, for the Christian, death.
death is a departure. But secondly, it is an exchange. Paul exchanges transience for permanence. The certainty, the security, the healing that we long for is found in this transition. Where? Well, that leads to the third way that the Christian views death. It is, and this is beautiful, it is a reunion. That's what the new creation is all about. That is what heaven is all about. It is a reunion. And though many speculate about what heaven will be like, notice Paul's words. At the heart of it, it is to be with Jesus. Jesus is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful in the world. So we get to be near the source. You know, I remember some of my kids would ask when they were younger, like, what's heaven like? Is it like Disneyland? I need to know. I'm like, the main point you need to know is that it is to be with Jesus. That's how Paul viewed the result of death. That's why he could say to die is gain. Why? Because it meant being with Jesus. In fact, this theme is so prominent that it repeats throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you a rapid fire list of examples to prove the point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17. How did Paul view heaven? When he talks about Jesus coming again, he says, we will be with the Lord forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 14. The one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13, 4. By God's power, we will live with him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. God has made you alive with Christ. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You want another one? Here you go. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The definition of life for Paul is a person, and his ambition is to be with him forever. And that is why the alternative is terrifying. The alternative is to choosing Jesus is rejecting him and experiencing eternal separation. That's what hell is. It's called the second death. Eternal separation from God. But through the gospel, he gives us this invitation to be with him forever. And that shapes Paul's perspective. Does it shape yours? You've heard me make fun of this before, but it bears repeating. That phrase, I see it everywhere. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey, bro. I'm like, does it even make sense? Like, who gets on a plane for hours on end? You're like, hey, where are you headed? And they're like, shh. Doesn't matter. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. I'm like, What? Why would you get in an aluminum tube at 30,000 feet in the air for like eight hours just for the, for the peanuts? Like, no. <laughs> yes, I understand. Things happen along the journey. You're going to be shaped. You're going to be formed. You can make choices. You can impact lives. But the destination matters. Friends, for the Christian, our destination is to be with Christ, which is far better 
We need this in life. We need this when we face death. I was just with uh, my extended family yesterday as we were celebrating a small informal memorial for my wife's uh, grandfather who recently passed away. And in those moments, I'm always struck with these two emotions. One is just, there's the grief, there's the mourning of a life that you loved. But I'm also reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that we get to hold out to other people that death will not have the last word. It's the only thing that gives me courage if I'm ever asked to speak to someone who's bereaved or or speak at a funeral. When I was younger and I was just starting out in ministry, the first funeral I ever preached at was my father's funeral. And my brother and I, we we got to decide, my mom let us decide, like, what verse are we going to put on my dad's tombstone? And we put, you know, in John, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Like, put that on his tombstone. Because that is the promise of the gospel. Death is not the end. We will be with the Lord. And it is better by far to use Paul's word. This ambition, it is eternal. Not even the grave can destroy it. And that is good news. For to me, to live is Christ. And because of that, to die is gain. I wonder if that truth really shapes our vision for how we live our lives, for how we do our jobs, for the the way in which we, we treat one another. Are we mistaking pleasant ends for our eternal home? See, this week I'm asking and for us, we need to ask, like, we're passionate about a lot of things. It could be our, our family, it could be work, it could be sports, it could be your hobbies, and those things are fine. But what is our ultimate ambition? And what actually shapes my perspective? What is it that actually shapes my, my decision making? Paul says, well, for to me, to live is Christ. He is my ultimate ambition. Now, some people, they hear this and they're like, look, I don't want to be one of those like over-enthusiastic Christians because we mistakenly think that if we're really focused on Jesus, that we won't care about anyone else. And that is absolutely not true. And that leads to the third mark of Paul's ambition. This ambition is sacrificial. Saying that you're all about Jesus will not result in a life that is totally disconnected and that you don't care about people. Right? If you really love Jesus, you're not like, oh, I hate humans. I just want to go away and be alone and just like be with Jesus. Some people kind of over-spiritualize their like solitude, like they want to live there forever. Oh yeah, I'm just with Christ. I never even talk to humans. That's how holy I am. But real spirituality doesn't result in needing people less. It results in loving people more. And that's what happened with Paul. So how does Paul make his decisions? How does his ambition cash out? Well, look in verse 24. In the midst of his dilemma, when he's talking about, man, here I am in prison. Death is a real possibility. On the one hand, I really want to be with Jesus, but I also know my life could be good for you. Philippians. And so he comes to his conclusion in verse 24. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So notice his decision-making process. First, he provides his personal preference in verse 23, which is, I'd rather be with Jesus. But then enters his pastoral responsibility in verse 24. What tips the scales for him? A few simple words. It is more necessary for you. Or some translations say, for your account or for your sake, it is better for me to remain. Although Paul's personal preference is to be with Christ, he is convinced that if he's liberated from this jail, that it will result in growth for others. He has determined to serve them. See, Christian ambition is an ambition that is directed towards Christ and serves the good of others, even at a cost to themselves. That is Christian ambition. And it's important to make that distinction because some of the greatest pains represented in this room come from the ambitions of other people. But they were wrongly directed ambition. If you just want to make money, you sacrifice your family. You sacrifice other people. If you just want fame and power, you can sacrifice other people in the church even to try to get it. This is the complaint about ambition in politics and in business and oftentimes even in the church. But Paul's ambition looks different. It is sacrificial. The fruitful labor that Paul envisions is not for his own advantage. If he gets released, it is for the blessing and advantage of other people. And this is beautiful. And it's a good reminder for the Philippians who we learn from this letter, we're probably not in danger of any kind of doctrinal threat, but there were certainly threats to their unity. There was self-centered ambition in this church, just as there is quite often selfish ambition in us. Paul uses this as a teachable moment. When you make Christ your ultimate ambition, it results in a sacrifice that benefits other people. To live alongside of them and not above them. And this is his charge in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I love that picture of unity. Stand firm together. We don't live above one another. We live on behalf of one another on the same foundation of Christ. It means that every person in this church matters to God and should matter to us. There's no person in this room who can say, I'm not important here. There's no person in this room who could say, I'm not needed. Some of you might be new to Reality Ventura and you think nobody knows me here. And that may be true. And we hope that that doesn't remain the case, but that in no way diminishes your value in the church of Jesus Christ. Because your value and your worth and your purpose come from Christ. None of us here today can look over and say to someone, I don't need you. Not that you would, hopefully you wouldn't. But we stand firm in one spirit. And so our question is not what can I get out of these people, 
But what can I pour into these people? When you think about work, what can I pour into this? How can I reflect and display Jesus with my physical presence? Even when it's hard. Even when there's opposition. Paul says in verse 28, he addresses this. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. In fact, this is a sign to them, he says, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. See, as you make Christ your ambition, it will result in a sacrificial attitude towards others. You will serve them, and your unity becomes an evidence to those who don't believe in the gospel. It's an evidence that they're headed in the wrong direction, the opposite direction of God. But it is also an evidence of genuine faith. And that leads to the fourth and last mark of his ambition. This ambition is joyful. It is full of joy. It is my privilege, Paul would say, when I make Christ the center, when he's my ambition, even when I suffer, I have joy. Like my imprisonment, Paul would say, the opposition you face actually becomes an opportunity to display Jesus to the world. Notice the language that he uses when he talks about opposition in verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's saying, I want you to view opposition as an opportunity to display what matters most. Even when it's hard, there may be pain, but even still, it's an opportunity for you and I to demonstrate what our ambition truly is. And when we realize we can do that in any and every circumstance, we have joy. But we might ask, where can I get the power for this? Like, how can this actually become? What motivates me to really think? When things are hard, like, yay! See, a lot of people love the first part of verse 29. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe. Yay. But do we underline the, but also to suffer. But notice how Paul talks about it. It's been granted to you. Hey guys, good news. You get to suffer for Christ. You're like, yay. They didn't tell me that at the altar call outreach that I went to. <laughs> but this, even this, is a part of Paul's joy. Because it means that even when things for, go bad, even when there's opposition, he says, I still have a reason to be joyful because the thing I care most about is Jesus and I get to display him to the world, even against a dark backdrop of suffering and adversity. And so Paul has joy. But how, is, how do you get to the place where Paul makes this choice? to make Christ first, and as a result, be willing to serve other people. Well, Paul's words in verse 22 reveal to us his dilemma, the strong inward pressure he feels within. He says, literally, I'm torn between the two. And this gives us a clue as to how you and I can come to that place where we're able to say, to live as Christ, and it is necessary for you that I serve and I bless your life. What tips the scales in the same direction? It's the same truth that tipped the scales for Paul. 
Why does Paul write this in this passage? Why does he tell us about this internal debate? I think there's two reasons. One, he is providing an example in himself of the very lesson that he wants to teach in the next chapter. That we are to prioritize the needs of others. So he's modeling in chapter one what he's going to tell us in chapter two. Yes, it would cost him to stay, but it is for your account, he says, for their account. And in that phrase, it leads us to the second reason why I believe Paul reveals his inner dilemma to us and how he chooses. And that is because he is modeling the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, in the gospel, the most ambitious thing of all happened. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in heaven, when he came into our world, he gave up the joy of face-to-face communion with his Father, and he took upon himself the destruction and penalty that our sin deserves when he died in our place on the cross. Why? Why did Jesus leave? Why did he come down? Why did he become a servant? In a phrase, for your account. It is necessary for you. Jesus, looking down at us, could have said, you guys made your bed, lie in it. Deal with the consequences of your own sin. But he didn't. He said, I will go. I will suffer at infinite cost to myself for your account. It is necessary for you that I go. He died for your account, for your joy. And that is why Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 famously says, therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, for your account, he laid down his life. Church, think of how Ventura County would change if people placed at the very center of their ambition, Jesus who laid down his life for the world. What would this result in? Men and women laying their lives down for others. And when they're asked why, we would simply say, because of Jesus. Make him your ambition because he made you his ambition. Allow this mission statement to be written on your heart today. To me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Because it means I'm going to be with Jesus. If you've not yet done so, if you're not yet a Christian, I invite you today to invite Jesus to be your Savior. Put him at the center of your life and experience salvation. And the one reason 
worth living for, the one truth that will save you. Do that today. Let's pray together as we all ask God to write this statement in our heart. Father, we thank you so much for that good news that you, out of your abundant love, were willing to leave the comfort of glory to come into our world and to live on our behalf, die on our behalf, and rise on our behalf. Father, I pray that we would be in awe of your great and sacrificial love for us. And that even now, in response, we would put you at the center, make you our ambition, and that that would result in loving, sacrificial service toward others. That's where the joy is, Lord. You've told us. So I pray that right now, any rivals for first place in our own heart would be dethroned. It could be that we're just putting our comfort above you, worldly ambition above you. It could be, even be good things like friends and family. But you've told us the only way to love them rightly is to put you first. When we put you first, we will love them rightly. So God, would you do that work in our heart? May we treasure you above all and may we experience the joy as a result. Holy Spirit, do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.